name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. During one of our Thursday evening Bible studies, someone mentioned that Palm Sunday reminded them of the Queen's annual death rehearsal. Have you ever heard of this practice? I had not. I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, But it is about Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth is the longest reigning monarch in British history, and she stands for stability and order in her kingdom. Her passing will be a very sad and vulnerable moment. So the plan of what to do with that has been processed in infinite detail. The phrase London Bridge is down will be put into motion and it will be a design that has been in place since the 1960s and is updated several times every year in secret. The prime minister will be notified. A footman will place a black edged notice on the gates of Buckingham Palace. The grieving will begin. Following 12 days of national mourning, 2,000 guests will be invited to the funeral. The flags will fly at half-mast, and then Prince Charles will be crowned king. The piece you're probably still wondering about, however, is how any of this would be connected to Palm Sunday. Well, I was like that too. I've always thought of Palm Sunday as a kind of first-century party for Jesus, riding into town triumphant at the crescendo of his career to the roaring of an adoring crowd. Maybe a little Jesus Christ superstar playing in the background. This echoes the tradition of victorious Roman generals parading triumphantly through cities, holding high the armaments of war because they had divinely escaped death. Because the generals could be tempted by the adulation of the crowd, the emperor placed a servant in the chariot that had only the job to whisper in the ear of this general, remember that you are human. Remember that you are but human. So Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is a parody of this Roman parade. You know, when Ashley Gitchell shared a painting called The Entry of Christ into Jerusalem by Louis-Félix Lullier from the 19th century at one of these Bible studies, I had a visceral reaction to the painter's version of Christ as a sitting duck exposed in a way that I had never seen depicted before. The perspective of the painting is through the shoulders of all of the bystanders in the crowd, with Jesus in kind of a misty mid-ground, riding a donkey that is so small that his robes cover the entire animal except for its head. Christ looks very vulnerable and alone in Lulier's painting. But this more closely follows scripture because as soon as Christ openly raised Lazarus from the dead, a price was placed on his head, which makes this open ride illogically risky. Jesus is allowing himself to be seen and tracked by those who will kill him. You know, the rehearsal of Jesus's death is called the Passion and was laid out by the prophets in scripture. Instead of London bridges down, it is called the cross 
going up. Jesus had been sharing the details with his disciples for years, but they were disbelieving that the Messiah would die for his enemies rather than crush them with his right-handed power. It's an upside-down kingdom, this kingdom of Christ. His kingdom comes in death rather than in life. Jesus has the opposite experience of the queen or the Roman general. No chariot, no legions of soldiers. And he is the servant whispering to us, remember that you are but human. As he rides to his death, not away from it, for us. No, Jesus exposes his vulnerability in order to be with us in our vulnerability. This struck me so clearly this week. Jesus came for those who love him or ignore him. Those who demand more from him or demand nothing. For those who think his life and death was hopelessly idealistic. And for those who think of him as a wise but tragic figure of history. There is much irony and paradox in this acted-out parable of how God comes to us in vulnerability and weakness, in death and infamy. It's so unexpected. So two stories came to mind when I was contemplating the unexpectedness and vulnerability of God's way of intervening for us. The first is a personal story. I was um, about 12 years old my first babysitting gig, and I was not actually a very good babysitter because I was very timid and scared and knew that I didn't know what I was doing. But on this particular night, there was a very loud and dark thunderstorm that was raging outside, heavy, heavy rain, and eventually the lights flickered, and then they went out. So I was also very afraid of the dark, um, any, any bit of darkness. And in those days, it also meant when the electricity went out, the phones went out too because they were connected to the electricity. So the phones are out, the electricity is out. I don't know what to do. I knew I couldn't leave these two kids sleeping in their rooms and go to my house. I couldn't call the parents because the phone is out. I was terribly, terribly afraid and crying in the dark. I couldn't figure out what to do. I suddenly saw a large, dark figure walking across the open garage space. I couldn't even scream because I was so scared. And then I heard my father's voice say, Mary, are you okay? I've come to sit with you until they get home. My soaking wet dad had come for me. Knowing that I would be scared in the dark and the thunder and wouldn't know what to do. My dad came for me in the most vulnerable moment because he knew me and he loved me. The second story is about a man named Petrell Gilmore. You probably don't know him. You might have seen him on television at some point. He was a convicted felon drug dealer who had a, a gun battle um, with the feds down on the mall at some point. He's been shot. He's been shot at. He has shot other people in his hometown of Charlottesville. 
So in late December 2020, a young man named Buck was shot and killed in Charlottesville. And Patrell felt compelled, compelled, something beyond himself to form a group of men who dubbed themselves the Buck Squad, or Brothers United to Cease the Killing. These former felons who had been transformed by the gift of sobriety through the power of the love of God, volunteered to be conflict mediators of gun violence, to walk into the middle of a gunfight and talk to the men involved. Patrell described their new street weapons that they did that with. And he said, the first thing we do with a gang leader, a gunfighter, is we tell them, we love you. We love you. You know, they usually cry and say no one has ever told them that. We lead with love. We empathize with them because we were them. We were them. We know what that's like. We don't judge. Most killings are because of ego, and we can speak to that. So when Patrell was asked about the possibility of being killed, of walking into the middle of a gunfight, he said that they know it. They pray every Thursday night. They know it could happen, but they created the problem and they love these guys because they've been loved because Christ loved them first. So they're willing to do it. And he quoted Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The Buck Squad's vulnerability in love is palpable and powerful and has changed lives because of the power and sacrifice of God, the love of Christ for us. We think of vulnerability as weakness. There are mass shootings, killer storms, savage viruses, screaming children, limping marriages, and demanding jobs that need to be juggled. We feel vulnerable enough. We don't want a vulnerable God who would come as a man riding a donkey instead of in a blazing chariot. The disappointment of the Holy Week people is our disappointment too. We would prefer Jesus Christ strong arm our lives into order and predictability instead of arriving in humble love. But God chooses this way because his compassion and love are infinite, not finite. As David Lose reminds us, God chooses to meet us in our vulnerability, to accept us in our weakness, to love us in our unlovability, to redeem us amid our sin. We take Jesus's words about God and God's kingdom seriously, then we might grow more accustomed to God doing the unexpected. God just forgiving us out of love rather than demanding satisfaction first. God acting more like a desperate parent than an angry monarch. God reaching out again and again in love and mercy rather than exacting retribution. Jesus does not die, in other words, to make it possible for God to forgive us, but rather to show us that God already has forgiven us because God loves us. 
You know, my granddaughter asked me last month, I don't know where she gets these questions, but what the world would be like if Jesus Christ had never come, had never come to this earth to be with us. If there were no New Testament, no Christmas, no Palm Sunday, no Good Friday, no cross, no resurrection, what would we not know or experience? What would our lives be like? Well, the most obvious and jarring answer is that we would not know God because Jesus is the revelation of God, a walking, talking, loving revelation of God, letting himself be seen and experienced by us. Eugene Peterson calls Christ the God revealer. And the reason for his death is clear. God rise to his death on that little donkey so that you would know that he loves you like that. God made himself vulnerable to the judgment of the world to prove that he loves you like that. The world cannot judge you. Only Christ can. The buck stops here, literally, at the cross. Amen.